Each year, over 125,000 Americans die from overdose and suicide combined. And this is not including the other causes of death related to substance misuse. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope, and you are definitely going to enjoy my guest, Jay Schiffman, today. Thank you. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Who are the people that abuse and misuse drugs? They could be our friends, our neighbors, our family members, they go to our churches, they eat next to us at our favorite restaurants, they talk to us through our favorite podcasts, but we really don't necessarily know who they are and how to help them. My guest today is going to give us a clear insight into these issues. And these deaths, and this is what we're going to focus on today, these deaths are completely preventable. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope, and Jay Schiffman is our guest. Hi, Jay. <laughs> Hi. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So you are a mental health and substance misuse recovery speaker. I, I thought it was interesting that it says that you have misuse and not abuse. You might want to address that uh, later, but that's up to you. You are sure. also a coach, an advocate, and the host of Choose Your Struggle podcast. I love the name of that. Choose your struggle. It's like fight your battles. <laughs> Very similar. That's right. Okay. All right. Well, welcome, Jay. And let's start with one of your stories when you hit rock bottom. This was in Johnston, Pennsylvania. Yeah. So uh, for your listeners, I currently live in Pennsylvania, but this was 11 years ago. And, and at the time, I, I did not know that I would be soon living not far from the small town of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where this takes place. So uh, kind of come in full circle, which is very, very interesting to me. But for those of you who don't know Pennsylvania, uh, it, it's very um, it's you know, there's a lot of sort of industrial areas, um, a lot of really big hills that uh, the highway has been built through, and these uh, the, these tunnels are are not. Uh, they were built a long time ago, and so quite frankly, they don't really accommodate today's roads that well. And that comes into play a little bit on my story. So, what was going on with me at this time was I had just checked myself out of a, out of a long term care facility, the kind of place we would have called a mental institution 50 years ago. Uh, I was there because I'd been misdiagnosed in my teenage years uh, with a issue uh, of mental health called bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I didn't have bipolar disorder. 
And I learned that after being sent to this this institution. Uh, instead, I was struggling with substance misuse and addiction, and, and I, I learned that firsthand in this this center. But but the, to to understand my uh, rock bottom, you need to know the year that taking place before that that date, uh, which by the way was January second of two thousand ten. The the previous summer. I had given up hope of ever feeling better uh, with this diagnosis. I, I, I had uh, really decided that I wasn't getting better after years of medication, after being on on six different medications every day, taking oh, handfuls of drugs every every day. And so I attempted suicide twice in two days. The second day, uh, I, I overdosed. Uh, spent the night handcuffed to a bed at a hospital. Woke up the next day in a lockdown unit. And uh, oh. spent three weeks there before being sent to this long-term care facility. So it was there that I fully realized, as I said, that my, my issue was addiction, not, not uh, bipolar disorder. So I checked myself out. And I'm feeling pretty good about this decision because I'm going to go live with my grandmother. I'm going to go get off of all these drugs. And uh, I, I set out driving from this long-term care facility in the Berkshires in, in Massachusetts to Arizona. That's my goal. Okay. But, but it's going to be a long trek. But I'm, I, like I said, I'm feeling good, right? Because I made this decision that I believe is the right one. And, and of course, time proved me right. But at the time, you know, there weren't a lot of people that thought that I was thinking that clearly. And not five minutes over the bridge into New York City. So I've been driving at this point for a couple hours. I get T-boned by a cab. And it bends the rear driver's side wheel of my car completely inward. Now, for most people, that is – I mean it's not fun. No one's excited about this. But but I was OK. The friend of mine that was in the car was OK. And I should have just put the car in a shop, had it fixed, and continued on my way. But like I said, I'm feeling good about this decision. I'm <laughs> believing that you know I need to go to Arizona. So I set out to drive this – all the way across the country trek in a car on three wheels. And going back to what I first told you about Pennsylvania, now I'm driving through these giant hills. It's January 1st, January 2nd by this point, excuse me. And it's blizzarding. And I'm in a car that is being held straight on willpower alone. So after a day of losing control, multiple times ending up in ditches, I popped that damaged tire and had to walk on the side of the road for a while. I'm cutting through these giant tunnels. It's me in a truck next to me. I'm praying the entire time I'm doing this that I'm not going to you know, end up in front of the truck. And I finally, after 10 hours of going what should have only taken me about four and I know that because I've actually done this drive since from New York to Cincinnati, Ohio, and it, and it didn't take me that long. I gave up. I said, I can't do this anymore. And I pull off the, the, the highway into a small town called Johnstown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and in Johnstown, and I always say this because I want to be very clear. If you're from Johnstown, if your grandmother lives in Johnstown, I'm sorry. I'm sure there's beautiful things about Johnstown. I didn't see a single one. This was industrial town in the middle of the country. You know, uh, there's only thing is open on January 2nd during this blizzard is this dirty truck stop motel and the gas station across the street. So I ended up walking across the street and getting a Pop-Tart for dinner. <laughs> and I'm sitting on this carpet, this dirty carpet in this truck stop motel, motel. And that is the night that I see as my rock bottom. 
because just a day before, I felt so confident in my decision to leave this long-term care facility despite everybody wanting me to stay. Just a day before, I had for the first time really in my adult life trusted my own instincts. And here I am sitting on a dirty truck stop carpet in the middle of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, (laughs) feeling like I am more alone than I've ever felt in my life. So – I did the thing that everybody who struggles with addiction does, and I reached out to a higher power. And for me, nobody came. Uh, I was sitting there alone on a dirty truck stuff carpet in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. So uh, that night, I was very hard. Uh, I don't want to minimize it. I was very alone. I was very uh, scared. I was very depressed. But I finally had the realization after, I mean, hours of just sitting on this disgusting carpet that if I'm going to get better, I'm going to have to do this thing myself. I'm going to have to put my recovery on my back and I'm going to have to take care of myself. And that's what I did. I got up the next day. I left my car there in a in a garage um, and rented a car from the closest rental agency and drove to Cincinnati, Ohio, where I'm from and got on a plane there for Arizona, where I ended up going through detox and getting into recovery. That's quite the story. I think so, too. And and again, I do want to make sure that I always say this. Uh, no offense to Johnstown. If, if, if you're from there, hit me up. I would love to learn what makes your town amazing. <laughs> I will say I will say I was doing this. This this uh, I was I was telling a story once in person and I do my usual shtick about Johnstown. And somebody comes up afterwards and they're like, hey, I'm from Johnstown. And I went, "Uh oh, (laughs) oh, boy. And they're like, no, 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 dude, you got it right. (laughs) (laughs) Confirmation comes in weird ways. That's exactly right. They were like, no, you you saw the best of it. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So was that now you've been in recovery for over 10 years. Was this your turning point or was it a, a different place? You know, it's it's funny. That was my literal rock bottom because I did not get any lower from there and I did start coming back up again. That being said, I see I see my turning point as uh, coming on on Election Day of 2015. uh, I was five years into recovery and that recovery wasn't very meaningful. I, I was literally doing better. And by the way, when people talk about the date they enter recovery, that date is very static. But in reality, that date is very fluid because that might have been the day that I, you know, in the spring of 2010 was when I when I stopped taking all these prescription pills that I was uh, addicted to. But it took me a solid five years to feel better, to be healthy again. And, and, and that's what I really see as my turning point. That that year, I I had a I was you know I graduated school a couple years before I had a good career I I was living alone in my own place like I felt stable, and I truly was like all right all of that is behind me now I'm five years into this I really feel better, and then a buddy of mine who runs a storytelling organization in Cincinnati approached me about telling my story for the first time. And I said, as you can probably imagine, no way, (laughs) there is no way I'm ever going to tell that story. And uh, he was persistent, but I kept saying no. And finally, I went home to see my parents for dinner one day, as I did all the time. And I mentioned to my dad that that I had this opportunity. And uh, he said, well, why are you saying no? And I was like, really? I mean, I'm terrified. Okay. And he said, well, you know what? Fear is not a good reason not to do something. And it just floored me because he was 
he was right. Absolutely. So I went back to my friend and I said, ask me again. And he did. And I said, yes. And in front of about 150 people on election night in 2015, I told my story for the first time. And it was one of the most gratifying uh, and cathartic experiences of my life. Uh, I thought that I had just, you know, I mean, we talk about the stigma around mental health and substance misuse and addiction is real. I mean, there's people who have lost their livelihood because of this. I thought I just committed a cardinal sin. That was that was it. My life is over. And in fact, it was the opposite. Uh, it, It really launched me in this direction that now six years later, here I am doing this for a living and helping people. Uh, it would not have happened except for me finally saying yes that one night, thanks to my buddy asking me over and over again, and my dad telling me, you know what, you can do this. So then continue with the story to let us know how you got from there to where you are now. Yeah, so that is um, <laughs> a great question. So I, I was still doing my, my full-time job for a while after that. I, I used to work in nonprofit fundraising. I had about a decade in that. Uh, and then I switched to politics. I ran political campaigns. And I did that full-time while doing this work on the side. So I would speak on occasion. Uh, I was doing some one-on-one work, um, some consulting, a lot of writing around these issues, telling my story a lot. And in uh, late 2018, I just gotten married. Uh, and, and I was working with a career coach because I was good at my job, but I didn't, I didn't love it. I liked it a lot. And I was, like I said, I I was good, but I wasn't fulfilled. And she said to me something that I think I need to hear a lot, which is why aren't you just doing this full time? And I said, well, well, you know, I can't do this. And she basically was just like my dad was like, but you realize that's just a fear, right? And she helped me take this leap. In January of 2019, like I said, I'd just gotten married. We went on my honeymoon. I came back, and literally two weeks later, I walked into my boss's office. We, you know, this was a month after election season ended, and so he was ready to start gearing up for the next one. And I said, I think I'm done, and, and caught him really off guard. We had a, about an hour and a half discussion where I told him I want to start doing this work full time. I want to commit myself to helping those struggling with addiction, with mental health. And he finally kind of was like, I'm a little disappointed, but I'm happy for you. And that was where we left it. And so in January of 2019, I started doing this full time. And and now here we are two and a half years later. At what point in your recovery or possibly before your recovery, did you want to be in a position to help other people? Is that in general your personality or is this something that after, you know, the sequence of events that you just shared happened and then you thought, N- I have to take this to the next level? That's a great question. And, and I think the answer to your, to your question is, is yes. You know, uh, I, I grew up in a family that it was always more important what we were doing to be good people than anything else. You know, I I remember fondly conversations around the dinner table. It was never, hey, pa, I got this um, report card. My parents didn't care. What they cared about was where are you volunteering this weekend? What you know, what school clubs are you involved in? That was the kind of thing that made them happy is us being good citizens. So I had that solid base. And, and and then the, the second piece of that really was, again, telling my story, being invited to do more. And in fact, uh, the second time I ever told my story was a couple weeks after the first. I was invited to do a TED event, and I did that, and it was in an event space. And I get off stage, 
and uh, the, the manager of the kitchen walks over to me and he says, uh, would you come with me for a minute? I said, yeah, sure. And I come back and, and everybody in the kitchen is waiting there. And he said, we have a we have a policy here. We only hire people in recovery because the kitchen manager uh, is in recovery himself. We heard your story and we ended up having a 45 minute just mini session of everyone talking <laughs> and, and really being open. I, to, to say that tears were shed is an understatement. No so kidding. that really for the first time showed me like the power of this work. And I realized not long after that, and, and this was kind of the main reason that I left my career and started to do this full time. If I wasn't dedicating my second chance in this world where sadly too many, too few people don't even get a first, I wasn't using my second chance wisely. And so that was what pushed me over the edge to start doing this full time. I love it. I just absolutely, and I love your passion. That Thank is you. coming through so clearly. We're going to take a 30 second break. And when we come back, there are many questions that I have, but I essentially want to know what other people who may be hurting in this area not know where to go, what their resources are, where they can go. And then the other side of that question would be, what can I do to help? Okay, we'll be right back. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. I'm really intrigued because I think I mentioned to you in an email recently that I have had two guests just in the last month on the show who are also involved with helping those who are uh, struggling with substance abuse, etc. from the past and, and have turned their lives into helping others. And I think you mentioned at one point here that it's natural. I mean, first of all, it's natural for you because that's the way you were brought up. But I also think it's a natural transition when you have been so low and so hurt and you were able to turn around and change that, that you would want to do that for somebody else too. So was that part of your motivation? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's, it's really tough because I always value the opinions of people who have spent their entire lives researching things. It doesn't matter what the topic. I value their commitment to their the idea. That being said, there are certain things where that simply falls short. Uh, in, in lived experience, in my opinion, trumpets all. And when it comes to things like what I'm talking about, when it comes to experiences like what I lived through, you cannot fully connect with someone struggling or, 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 you know, in that situation, if you've not been there yourself, perfect example, 
couple years ago, I went on a ride along with with what's called the quick response team. And if you're not familiar with this concept, listeners, this is new ish. The last three or so years, this is a new idea that counties especially are, are implementing. And what this is, is a team of individuals that every week they get new batches of reports from hospitals, from first responders, et cetera, of people who have experienced an overdose in the last week. And they go to meet this person, whether it's they go to if they're homeless, where they were last seen. Uh, if they have a house, they go find them there. If they overdose at their job, they will go to the job. If it's a hospital, whatever the case is. So I went on a ride along because I was so intrigued by this idea. And by the way, I think these are incredible uh, teams of people and all of them want to help. So I show up and I ride along with this group for the entire day. And uh, this team that day was made up of one sort of organizer. She that This was her job was to organize this. She, she it was, you know, it was a job like any other job in healthcare. She didn't really have a direct connection, but she, she cared about the mission. A policeman and a fireman. That was the team. And there wasn't a whole lot of success that day. We talked to some people a couple of times. Uh, I kind of weighed in throughout the day, but mostly I was silent, just observing. And we get to the end of the day and the, the, the organizer pulls me aside and says, all right, you know, we don't get a lot of people in recovery or, or have been there on these ride alongs. Can you kind of give me your thoughts? And I said, are, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, yeah. I said, all right, you have to change this entire model. I said, Here, here's, really? a couple of, of, here's a couple of struggles. Number one, the person knocking on the door is a policeman. If you are actively struggling, if you are using <laughs> drugs of any kind, who is the last person you want to see knocking on your door? A policeman. <laughs> so I said, I get that there is a little bit of fear of safety. Have them wait in the car or something. If you have to have them, they cannot be the person knocking on the door. That's number one. Number two, why is it that the only person out there today who ever experienced what they're going through is me? And I'm there for my own information. Where is a person? Where is your peer recovery supporter? Where is your person who's been through this? And she said, you know, we just uh, we've never really put any thought behind hiring someone. I said, well, you got to do it because when you walk up, you are clearly a very kind person. By the way, this woman who is an organizer was a very kind soul. But that person is just going to see someone trying to help. They're not going to see a peer. If I walk up and I say, hey, I can already identify the three drugs you're using just from the way you look because mm. I did it too, let's talk and I can either help you, A, find find support if you're looking to enter recovery or B, if you're not, maybe we can help you use a little bit more safely. Can we get you clean syringes? Can we get you uh, uh, drug testing strips that you know for sure what you're using? These ideas. But if you don't have anyone who talks the talk and walks the walk, it, it rings hollow. And, and so that's where having somebody who's been through this can be so influential. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm new here to Philadelphia, but I'm getting involved in a couple of organizations. And the only ones that I will be involved with are people who actually are um, whether they're in recovery or they have people who are in recovery on staff. It doesn't really matter to me as long as there are people there. If they're not, I, quite frankly, you're not doing enough. Well, are there other organizations similar to yours around the country or how? just share that a little bit? Like what can somebody do to get involved or to get yeah, help? Yeah, so there are definitely 
there are definitely organizations in most places who are doing this work. And if you yourself are in recovery, there is a lot you can do to lend uh, to, to lend assistance. Number one, and it's so sad to say this because it's so baseline, uh, but it's simply sharing your story and it's simply being open, right? I mean, think about this. The largest and most well-known organization for people in recovery in the world has the word anonymous in their name. That's where we're coming from with this struggle. If you are simply open about your struggle like I am, if you are willing to tell your story, you are doing so much good because I was on an interview not long ago where someone called me unique. And I got to tell you, very few words upset me. <laughs> you could call me a junkie and I'd be like, hey, that's not cool. Don't don't do that. You know, like that's not a word you should use anymore. But 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 it wouldn't upset me. If you call me unique, it really gets under my skin because it means you just haven't heard enough stories because let me tell you something, there's nothing about my story that's unique. It's just that we don't talk about these things. And I had to live that for a while. I used to live in Charleston, South Carolina. And if you know anything about the American South, you know that not talking about things is kind of their national pastime. So I, I, I like to joke that I got uh, told the words, bless your heart so often, my dog thinks it's my name. People don't like talking about this. And that's understandable. These are tough topics. I'm not going to tell you they're not. However, if you allow that silence to silence the movement, it's why we still are not talking about this, even though we've gone through so many drug crises that I, I mean, I've lost count. I, I don't I if you can tell me how many different quote unquote crises we've gone through, even in the last 20 years, uh, I'm amazed because I, I can't remember. So where do people find you? Not just you in particular, but groups that are willing to take this approach to helping them. Yeah, so a couple of different places. Um, social media is terrible, but it's also great for a lot of things. Uh, there, there is a very active community on LinkedIn, which is surprising. I know. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. So the reason it, it's so it's so amazing on LinkedIn is that for the longest time. We as Americans didn't talk about these issues in the workplace, right? Oh, it's unprofessional to talk, you know, all that kind of stuff. But if you think about it, before the pandemic, people in this country were spending more waking hours with their work friends or, or colleagues, whatever you want to call them, than they were with their, their families. So if we're not talking about this in the workplace, we're missing the biggest touch point for people's lives. So there is a growing... Uh, movement amongst people on LinkedIn to talk about these difficult issues. So, so definitely uh, do check that out. Um, I would say that it's probably the best right now because if you search for things like mental health or addiction on other social media, you know, on Instagram, you get a lot of people, this is my mental health. And they're just smiling, posing in a bikini or something, which look, don't get me wrong. If that's your thing, all the props to you, that ain't helping anyone's mental health. So, so LinkedIn is probably where you're going to find the most professional or, or best uh, best uh, thinking around these ideas. I would also say reach out to some organizations like, number one, uh, Drug Policy Alliance. I truly think that they are the best do at doing this work in, in, in the world. Um, they, they are very – they lead with empathy and that that is so important. Uh, number two, check out the organization – the magazine online called Filter, uh, F-I-L-T-E-R. 
It's a magazine written for and mostly by those who have struggled or currently use drugs. So it's a very honest and open conversation about drug use. Uh, you're not going to get a bunch of sort of uh, just say no Nancy Reagan stuff there. Uh, you're going to get real education around drug use. Um, and then reach out to me and I can point you in specific directions in your area and you can find me pretty much anywhere. Saying all that, what do you think needs to happen to bring a real change? Oh, boy. How much time do we have? So, uh, <laughs> you know, the e like I said before, the easiest thing to do is simply to talk about these things openly because uh, that there's they're sort of twin uh, twin pillars of my work. Number one is ending stigma. And number two is promoting honest and, and uh, truthful conversations about drug use, uh, addiction and, and mental health. The reason that those two have to go hand in hand is that you can't have the honest conversations until people are comfortable talking about it, right? right so right. we have to open the door before we can educate. But then once we have the door open, if we keep allowing a lot of the same lies and misinformation to, to be what people are saying, we're not going to move forward. So those two really have to go hand in hand and stigma and have honest and truth based conversations about drug use and, and uh, addiction. So that's number one. Um, number two is quite frankly, we must end the war on drugs in not just this country, this world. I mean, this is a whole world issue and you're seeing places that are doing this, that are having a better success. Uh, the perf the best example everyone loves to throw around is Portugal. Uh, Portugal decriminalized all drug use in 2001, I believe it was. And the rate of overdoses in that country has plummeted it, it which isn't that surprising. Uh, yeah. people don't have to. They don't have to, to to use in back alleys anymore. They they now uh, there are uh, safe consumption sites. There are treatment centers that that will will allow people to uh, use safer, you know, the harm reduction method, stuff like that. So, um, ending the war on drugs, and we're seeing this now with cannabis use, uh, is super helpful to end overdoses and and make people feel like you know that they can be open about drug use and their own struggles. So that's sort of the big picture work. Um, but the, but the, on the day to day level, it's not simply, it's, it's ending stigma and it's, it's honest and truth based conversations and, and education around these issues. Is this something that you discuss on your podcast? So tell us about your podcast or is it any subject? Yes, this is definitely something I talk about on, on the podcast a lot. Uh, the, the podcast deals with three uh, topics. Number one is mental health. Number two is substance misuse and, and addiction. Number three, I'm sorry, in recovery. Number three is um, uh, drug drug use and policy. So every person who comes on touches at least one, if not multiple, of those topics. Uh, and, and the reason is I truly believe they all go hand in hand. We are, of course, now learning that uh, people who struggle with misuse and addiction, almost one-to-one, -one, almost 100% are also struggling with an underlying mental health issue. Really? And many people who struggle with a mental health issue are misusing substances because uh, as, you, as you and I kind of talked about earlier, as you hinted at earlier, getting mental health uh, care in this country is super hard. And so if you can't get the help that you need, well, what's an easy way to just not think about the issue that's bothering you get really messed up? So it's, it's, it's an issue. These issues go hand in hand. 
Um, and, and that's why I like to cover all three of them. The only rule on my podcast, there's, there's two rules. Number one is you have to have some sort of lived experience connection. If your if your thing is is research, and I have had a couple of researchers on my show, that's fine. You can't just be a researcher because oh that seemed interesting. I wanted to get into it. No, no, no. You have to at least be you know my parents struggled with addiction, so I became a, a researcher or something like that. And the other rule is you cannot say the word only. And what I mean by that is if you strongly believe in your treatment method, if you strongly believe in your idea about prevention, I'm very cool with that. Props. The minute you say, I believe in this because it's the only one that works, that's Uh when we have a problem. Because as somebody who did not get into recovery through anyone's method, I, I did this thing almost entirely myself, I know for a fact that yours is not the only way, you know, my method wasn't the only way. So uh, the minute you say only, (laughs) we're going to have an issue. You realize you have to write a book. (laughs) So here's the funny thing. You're the third person to say that in the last week. (laughs) My my strategist and I have been talking about this a lot because uh, part of the issue is that um, I, I'm as a person who used to be a professional writer and as a avid book reader, I'm, I, you can't see this, but I'm literally staring at my bookshelf, which is overflowing. I want it to be right. I, I got to get this thing right if I'm going to do my book. So uh, it is something we're talking about. It is going to happen at some point. Uh, it's been on my to do list for about two years now. And, and at some point, we're going to make it happen. And the thing is, it has to be. Okay, here's that word, a unique book. <laughs> it cannot authentic. be like it has to be <laughs> yes. it has to be authentic. Yes. How is it going to be different from the ones that are already out there? Carol, I'll tell you what, if I knew the answer to that, it'd already be out. Um, <laughs> that's what you're looking for. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that that's the key is that I want it to be more than my story because I kind of it's not that I don't think that my story is important because obviously from everything I've been saying today, it's very important. But because I also now do this work, because I am a policy nerd and 90% of what I read is is uh, research and history into the, the, uh, the, the way that our country and sadly a lot of the world has treated drug use and those who have struggled with it, uh, I know that it needs to be more than just my story. And so figuring out how that is going to be presented is the biggest challenge. I like that answer. It was perfect. Now, to to capsulize and to motivate our audience, sum up what you would like, you would like to say to them what you would like them to do and anything else you would like to, like I said, to just capsulize everything that you've said today. It's been awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I I will finish on this note. I know that it's really hard to find mental health and addiction care in this country. Uh, perfect example, actually, is my own self. I, like I said, I just moved about a month ago, which means I was no longer allowed to get uh, wor- to work with my previous therapist because he's in a different state, and for some reason, that's an issue to our insurance companies. So uh, I'm looking for a new therapist. I emailed or called seven to this point. Huh. Uh, three, three are not taking new new clients. Uh, one refused to work with my insurance, which is a, 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 an issue that should not exist. Uh, and the others have not gotten back to me. So I know your pain. I know how hard it is. Uh, like I said, I literally do this for a living and I'm struggling. So uh, I get it. 
Um, what I would say to that is number one, keep trying, uh, because eventually you will find someone, even if you have to go to a couple first dates or so, or start working with a couple different therapists only to, to realize that the relationship isn't great. That happens. It's natural. Keep, keep looking, but also know that there are other forms of help out there. So, um, I don't coach as much as I used to because I'm a lot busier than I was before, which is good, but there are such, such things as mental health coaches out there. Uh, what they do and what I still do on, on the occasion, if, if, if someone really needs the help, I 100% will still work with people. Uh, think of mental health coaches as the physical uh, trainer to your doctor, right? If you went to your doctor and you said, hey, doc, what should I lift in the gym tonight? They'd be like, I have no idea, man. Why are you asking me that? You know, but if you went to your personal trainer and said, I think I threw my back out, they're going to say, go see your doctor. So that's the relationship here to from a, 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 a mental health coach to a, a, ther a therapist. Right. I what I used to do and what a lot of people who do this work still do is work with people on sort of your day-to-day -day mental health. It's your mindfulness. It's your uh, sort of, um, you know, sort of the cultural issue, right? And just the, the existing in the world today. And then a lot of what you can uncover through that work is the kind of thing you'll take to a therapist. So if you are struggling to find a, a, a good therapist, maybe a good step, and, and sadly, this was what I served a lot of people for, was being the interim, you know, the person that worked with them and helped them on their day-to-day -day mental health, on mindfulness techniques and all of that. So then when they did find a therapist, they were coming in already with good things to talk about and they didn't have to spend the first couple of months just digging down. You know, that's the kind of work that a good mental health coach can can help you do. So I definitely would recommend um, searching online. And what's great about the mental health coach is that you can do that work over Zoom. I've only ever had, I think, one client that I, I saw in person, everybody else I saw on Zoom, uh, even before the pandemic. Uh, because it's much more affordable, mm -hmm. it's much more accessible that way. Uh, and also it's not, you know, we're not doing anything protected by HIPAA laws and stuff like that. So, uh, you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, the, 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 the regulators in that way. So it's right. basically like having a peer or a good friend that you can rely on to talk through things. Uh, or like I said, a personal trainer. So definitely reach out to someone like that. If you're confused by this, if you have more questions, reach out to me. And, and also on that note, if you're struggling and you truly feel like you have no one that you can talk to, I know I was there, uh, reach out to me and I will, I will chat. I, I always make that offer. Uh, people have reached out to me on every social media you can imagine. Someone literally did it yesterday on Facebook messenger. Like, Hey, I heard you on this interview. Uh, do you have a moment to chat? You know, and I say yes oh, every time awesome. because I know that person's heard yes, it, you know? Yes. So, so definitely reach out and, and know that, know that I will be there to, to talk to you. And who should listen to your podcast? Well, I think everyone should personally. Well, of but, course. Uh, I know that. I, think, I, I was waiting for that answer. <laughs> I think, honestly, anyone who wants to know more about these issues, because I bring in uh, pretty big names on occasion, uh, you know, especially if you're in this world, you know these names, but sometimes not. I mean, I've had politicians, I've had athletes, musicians, actors and actresses. Uh, and also just everyday people who've lived through these experiences. So if you like good storytelling, if you like learning more about the topics of mental health, substance misuse and recovery and drug use and policy, uh, or, or if you just like the sound of my voice, you know, definitely, definitely check it out. Okay. I checked all those boxes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
Well, this has been great. I just, I'm excited because as you're talking, I'm thinking of different people. And I appreciate the fact that my, my audience is vast and I do reach a lot of people, which makes it even more exciting because there's going to be people that heard the sound of your voice today that just through this podcast and they're going to now connect with you. And that's what is reciprocal about. That's why we do what we do, right? Couldn't have said it better myself. And I'll tell you what, if you check out my podcast after hearing me on this show, let me know so that I can come back and say, hey, Carol, you were right. My husband has to say that to me all the time. <laughs> Carol, you were right. That doesn't surprise me in the least. <laughs> anyway, I appreciate that. Well, thank you again. This is great, Jay. And we definitely, I think we need to do this again six months down the road. And then you can tell me the status of your book at that time as well. Uh, part two, coming to your ears you in, uh, in the fall. You got it. All right. Thank you again, Jay, for being on Never Ever give up hope thank you for listening to never ever give up hope featuring carol graham did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to quitting was never an option carol loves your comments and will respond to each one so please subscribe and review this podcast a rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.